Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 15 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I've discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to spend some time with us here in the wildlands. If you've been with us before, you know the drill. Drinks are over there, and feel free to grab any open seat by the fire. If you're new here, let me take a moment to thank you for checking us out today. There are a ton of podcasts out there, YouTube videos, and other gaming content, so I really appreciate you taking a chance on us. Now before you get seated, please report to Didi, the canine leader of our expedition, for your obligatory sniffing, and to administer a 3-5 to five second belly rub to our canine leader. He may have some unorthodox methods when it comes to how he leads this expedition into the wildlands, but I do not question his methods. A good companion is worth its weight in gold, and nothing could be more true about the game that we're going to be talking about today. On today's episode, I wanted to talk about a game that would fit in with the scary theme and atmosphere of Halloween, which is right around the corner. I was up in the air if I even wanted to do a horror game since every other content creator out there was going to, but I can't deny how much I personally love this time of year, so there was no way I was going to ignore it. The big question then became, what game do we talk about this week? I had a pile in front of me and I thought about it for a while. I was thinking about another Resident Evil game, but I've already done two games in the series up to this point. I thought about Dead Space for the PlayStation 3, but I felt like it was a popular enough game everybody else was already going to be talking about it. I do want to eventually talk about Dead Space though, especially before the remake drops, but I wasn't really feeling it for this week, oddly enough. Same with any of the other Silent Hill games. We're fresh off the Silent Hill transmission where a pile of new projects were just teased, but I'm still not feeling it. But then, something pretty cool happened to me. I was able to get my hands on a game that's been on my wish list for quite a while now. On the off chance you didn't catch the title of the podcast this week, that game is called Haunting Ground. It was released exclusively on the PlayStation 2 back in 2005, and it sort of flew under the radar. I wasn't able to locate exact sales figures for the game, but I get the impression the game didn't really sell all that well. It's considered to be a niche game and didn't really reach a wide audience. Plus, there was this little game called Resident Evil 4 that released earlier in 2005, and my assumption is, if you had a choice between one Capcom game, Resident Evil 4 or Hunting Ground, you're probably going to pick up Resi 4. I know I did. I never heard of Haunting Ground until a few years ago. I came across a YouTube video that talked about the game, and it immediately drew my attention. It looked a lot like Resident Evil and seemed to have a unique gameplay style. You aren't fighting or evading waves of monsters with weapons and firearms. In Haunting Ground, you're almost completely on the defensive and usually just trying to avoid and outwit a single pursuer. One unique gameplay element that caught my eye as well was the inclusion of a dog that would act as your ally and protector. More than anything, I appreciate a video game that has a unique premise or take on a genre. The only issue with covering a game like this on the podcast is You've either heard of this game or you haven't, and I'm willing to bet that most people that will tune into the show probably haven't heard of this game. So is this a game I can make a good episode out of? 
Ultimately, I think so, hence why you're listening to it. I hope I did the game some justice, and I hope my experience with the game makes for a good story. The shitty thing about this game is that, since it's only available physically on the PlayStation 2 and not downloadable anywhere, except in Japan, this is not a cheap game to add to your collection. Unless you get lucky like I did and find it in a lot of games and the seller has no idea what they have, you're looking to drop a couple hundred dollars on this game. So is the game worth the price of admission? You'll just have to wait and see. More than anything, though, I'm eager to talk about this hidden gem. It's a very unique game and deserves to be talked about. Plus, I'm eager to tackle a game that's more serious in tone and see if I can't put together a compelling podcasting experience. Now on that note, I did want to caution our listeners this week. I had an idea what Haunting Ground's story was about and the subject matter that it tackled, but it wasn't until I played it this past week that I really understood how dark this game really is. While this is a horror game, there's a surprising lack of jump scares and gore. This is more of a psychological horror game, and the themes in this game are very adult. Haunting Ground has subject matter pertaining to the darker side of religion than alchemy, but specifically dives into things like cannibalism, voyeurism, rape, and unwanted pregnancy. The main character of Haunting Ground, Fiona Belli, is a young, attractive woman who's dressed in an outfit that is pretty revealing and pretty degrading. All of this is done with purpose, and we'll dive into this in the episode itself, but all that to say, Haunting Ground is a far cry from the games that I've covered on the show so far. It's an interesting game, one that has a very mature story that marries it exceptionally well with its gameplay. I'd like to think video games are works of art, and the artist that made this game did a pretty good job, but given how mature this game is, I just wanted to call this out ahead of time. While I'm not planning to dive deep into the story, I will be talking about some of the visualization, and I'll be touching on some of the subject matter and how it translates to the gameplay experience. I'm not looking to get deep into the details or anything, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. I originally put the Mature stamp on the podcast logo in case I swear too much, but this episode will more than embody that Mature rating due to its subject matter and not because of my foul mouth. That said, this probably shouldn't be an episode you listen to with your kids. You have been warned. Now before we get to the show itself, it's time to pull back the curtain a little bit here in the Wildlands. Before we get rolling, I usually like to take a few minutes and let everyone know what I'm working on potentially what's coming up on future episodes, and how the podcast itself is doing. An expedition that wants to get where it's going needs to have a little transparency, so I like to extend the courtesy. If you aren't interested in the finer details of the show, you can skip ahead about five to seven minutes. Check out the episode description timestamps if you don't want to fumble around and know exactly where you're going. So it's been another busy week over here. This weekend, my family and I are going to be celebrating Halloween by taking the kids out and having them hunt for candy to bring back home. 70% of that candy will probably be eaten by the kids, and the rest will be eaten by myself, because in this household, the candy tax is set at 30%. We carved pumpkins this past weekend, and that was a pretty good time, too. The atmosphere here is still a dark and brooding one, and I can't help but love it. I really want to try my hand at playing Resident Evil 7 in VR, so I'm trying to commit to making that the scary game that I play this year. I'm kinda so-so on VR in general, 
but when I do jump into it, I tend to have more fun than when I don't. I only have the PlayStation VR, and we got it for the family a couple years ago for Christmas. It's been pretty fun, and it has been a while since we've brought it out. There are a couple other VR titles that I've been eager to try when I have the time. Has anyone heard of a PlayStation 4 VR game called The Inpatient? It serves as a prequel to Until Dawn, and has you taking on the role of a patient of the Blackwood Sanatorium some 60 years before the events of the main game. The patient you play as has amnesia, and it's up to you to figure out who you are and why you're in the sanatorium in the first place. I think I've brought up Until Dawn and their developer Supermassive Games like three episodes in a row now, so to say that I'm a fan of this sort of thing is kind of an understatement at this point. But still, I kind of wanted to call that game out because I had no idea it existed and it looked really cool. Now as far as games go that I'm playing through or revisiting for the podcast, I'm finding myself pulled in a few different directions. Haunting Ground took me a lot longer to play through than I was anticipating since I did my best to avoid a walkthrough, so I haven't really put much time in anything else this week. However, my big rock game that I'm slowly making my way through is Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII for the Sony PSP. While I've already played it to absolute completion quite a few years back, I'm eager to play it again in preparation for the Crisis Core remaster that's dropping in December this year. I thought it would be cool to do an episode on it before we got the new game, so I'm slowly working on that. As far as the little rocks that I can work through a little bit quicker, I have a couple games that I'm looking to jump into. I've been thinking about going back to basics with some gaming staples like Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo, Sonic the Hedgehog on the Sega Genesis, Mega Man 2 on the Nintendo, and a few others. I think it's really going to come down to what I'm in the mood for this week, so I'll let my heart decide what it wants. Is there a game you think I should cover on the show? A few months back, a few of my pals on the Retro Wildlands Facebook page made mention of some games that I should try. There's been a couple that I've done so far, like Toe Jam and Earl and Maximum Carnage, and then there are others that I've ruled out for one reason or another, and then others that I've added to the to-do list. But if there's something that you'd like me to play, please let me know. You can do that by networking with the show via our social media channels. You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you search at Retro Wildlands. Not only is this the best way to get a hold of myself, it's the best way to interact with the show. I try to post something over there at least once a day in an effort to add some gaming goodness to your timelines and feeds, and I'm also starting to make callouts to anyone who wants to comment on the game that I'll be covering each week, share a memory, or even ask a question. Any comments that are submitted, I'll read during the next episode's intro. I've always liked it when podcasts allowed listeners to interact with the show itself, so I wanted to extend that option for anyone following us on social. And if you aren't following us, you're more than welcome to throw us a follow. If you follow the show, we'll follow you back. Now, I'm still getting my footing when it comes to social media. As outspoken as I can be sometimes, I was never the type of person to snap photos of everything I was doing or update my status whenever my mood shifted, so it's been interesting moving my mindset around. I've met some really cool people through our Retro Wildlands channel so far, so you're more than welcome to join up and come along with us for the ride. As far as the show itself goes, there's not too much to report this week. 
Download numbers ever so slowly continue to creep upwards, and I'm trying to find some organic ways to get the show some more exposure, and I'm finding that to be an interesting journey. I joined a few podcast-centric Facebook pages that seemed to be designed to just drop your show into it and promote it, and the moment I said, hello, I received, no joke, 13 different messages from various people claiming to be able to promote and market my show, and that was just within one hour. Is that how you get noticed in this space? Because if it is, it just feels kind of weird. I think I'd rather just grow the show via word of mouth and just see if I can grow it organically. Like I've said before, I still have no expectations on where the show will eventually end up. I'm just having a fun time doing it. Still, it's been pretty fun learning how to organically grow this little potted plant of ours. Huge props to podcasters out there who have started from scratch like I have with no big backers or anything. I truly do appreciate the amount of work that goes into something like this now. I'm just glad I'm having as much fun as I am, because if I wasn't, well, we probably wouldn't have gotten this far. Alright, and with that, I think it's time to get down to business. The time has come for us to talk about Haunting Ground. Released on May 10th, 2005 in North America, Haunting Ground tells the story of Fiona Belly an 18-year-old woman who decides to visit her parents after moving away to attend college. While driving down the road with her parents, the car crashes, killing both of Fiona's parents. Knocked unconscious during the crash, Fiona awakens in a cage in what seems to be a dungeon. She's able to escape and finds herself alone in a castle. As Fiona makes her way and starts to look for an escape from the castle, She'll find several inhabitants roaming the halls of the castle, and it is pretty clear that they do not have Fiona's best interests in mind. Fiona will slowly unravel the mystery of her being there, but the more she learns, the more it's clear that she needs to escape from the castle, and she needs to escape right now. So lace up your boots, grab a handful of lavender, and call upon a canine companion. It's up to us as the player to guide and protect Fiona as she looks for a way out of this horrific nightmare. If I had to go back and try to pinpoint a time in my life where I started to enjoy scary and suspenseful things, it would be back when I played Resident Evil for the first time on the original PlayStation. Looking back on it now, it's certainly not the scariest game out there these days, but there was something about being trapped in a mansion in the woods that was crawling with creepy zombies and other creatures that just sank its hooks into me. I enjoyed the tense and thick atmosphere, and not knowing what was going to be around the next corner. In a game like Resident Evil, though, there were ways for me to fight the evil that lurked the hallways of that mansion. The most effective way, of course, would be the weapons and firearms that I would find. It may take a handful of bullets, but I could stop pretty much anything with enough firepower. I was usually on the defensive most times and always at risk, but at least there was a way to push the evil back. My next step deeper into the darkness was when I played Silent Hill on the PlayStation. This took what I knew about horror games and upped the ante quite a bit. In Silent Hill, 
While I had a way to fight the evils that were pursuing me, they weren't finite like the evils in Resident Evil. In Resident Evil, I was able to slowly conquer the mansion by using my limited resources carefully to eliminate the monsters. Once eliminated, they never came back. In Silent Hill, defeated enemies would usually be replaced by other monsters in most cases. But it wasn't just about the enemies that I'd be facing, though. Silent Hill's horror came from the environment and the atmosphere it created. It's a game that made you question what you think you saw or what you thought you heard. It created an environment that quickly became an enemy in and of itself, and it's not something that you were able to shoot at and defeat. The idea behind this really exhilarated me as a gamer, and it's something that even translated into some of the movies that I watch and enjoy today. Games like Silent Hill left me in a near-constant state of heightened tension and paranoia. Though I could eliminate the physical threats that were meant to do me harm, the real harm Silent Hill inflicted on me, and I'm sure countless other players, was the damage that it inflicted on the mind. So, for most of my gaming career since then, those were the types of scary games that I tended to experience. I continued to play through the Silent Hill and Resident Evil series over the years, but I added some more to my resume. It wasn't until maybe four or five years ago that I really started to expand the different types of scary games that I played. I got deep into the Dead Space series, and I played a ton of Until Dawn over the years, but that was about as far as I had gotten. Then I tried a little game called Outlast. Outlast, for those that don't know, is a game where you control a journalist named Miles. Miles gets a tip that he needs to investigate a remote psychiatric asylum thanks to a tip that he received stating that the asylum is home to some inhumane experimentation happening on the asylum's patients. Curious to see what he can find, Miles decides to investigate the asylum and decides the best time to do that is at night because scary video game logic. Outlast is in the first-person perspective, and while that itself is enough to ratchet up the scare factor in any game, what makes Outcast such a thrilling experience is that your character isn't able to fight back against the dangers found within the walls of the asylum. There are no firearms to use, no melee weapons to swing around. All you can do is run and hide. It was a new kind of fearful experience for me. In games like Resident Evil and Silent Hill, I had the ability to fight back against the evil that pursued me, even if it did make more sense to run away in some of the instances. At least I had a choice, and at least I had a way to become more powerful than those things that were meant to do me harm. In Outlast, though, none of these were options. The only weapon was my ability to stay hidden, and if I was spotted, all I could do was get the hell out of Dodge. That sort of gaming experience was like nothing else. It scared me to play a game like that truly, but the rush was undeniable. Now, while I love scary games, I can only handle them in short bursts, and what I mean by that is one game at a time here and there. I tend to get burnt out on scary games if I play one after the other after the other, so I like to take a break after I complete a scary game and play something different and kind of mix it up a little bit. I just don't want to get into a funk where scary games don't do it for me, if that makes sense. It's usually around Halloween where, if I'm going to play a scary game, it's going to be around that time. For the last couple years now, I've replayed Until Dawn on my PlayStation 4. 
This last Halloween, I finally earned the coveted Platinum Trophy and saw all the game had to offer. So it was time to officially retire it. So what was next? I thought about giving Resident Evil 7 on VR a run-through, and I might still do that, but I didn't do it for this episode, and the reason for that was, well, the internet. I've really taken a liking to watching YouTube when I have some time to kill, or listening to other podcasts. One day late last year, I was watching a channel that had emphasis on survival horror games, and it had an episode dedicated to Haunting Ground. At the time, the name didn't ring a single bell for me, but the gameplay footage made me feel like that I've seen this game somewhere before. As I watched the gameplay, I could tell it was very similar to the older Resident Evil games. The main character looked to control as such, but what really sucked me in were the graphics. For a PlayStation 2 game, it looked amazing. Backgrounds weren't static, and the camera would dynamically move around, following the female heroine on screen. Then I noticed in some shots, there was a dog that it looked like you could command around. That solidified my curiosity. I wanted to know what this game was, and why the hell I'd missed it way back when. The more I learned about Haunting Ground, the more I wanted to play it. It had Resident Evil vibes, but the main character wasn't able to fight back against her pursuers, at least not very efficiently. She had to use the environment and her wits to outmaneuver them, and what's more, her canine companion was able to help her. It seemed like the type of horror game that would really be a unique experience. So, what is this game? Haunted Ground is a third-person survival horror game where you play as Fiona Belly, an 18-year-old college student who's coming back home to visit her parents. While the three of them are traveling in their car, they get into an accident. When Fiona wakes up, she finds herself locked in a cage in what looks to be a dark and dank dungeon. Fiona looks herself over and realizes that she's only wearing what seems to be a white bedsheet as clothing. Helpless and trapped, Fiona realizes she needs to find a way out of her predicament. Fiona looks over to the lock that's holding the cage door shut, and to her surprise, the lock appears to be unlatched. She makes her way out of the cage and to her feet. A storm is brewing outside, and every now and then a flash of light will illuminate the area. As Fiona stumbles about, she hears a noise coming from under a nearby table. In a flash, a four-legged animal bounds forward and leaps over Fiona, causing her to scream and fall backwards to the stone floor. Once Fiona gets to her feet, she notices a collar on the ground. Picking it up, she turns it over to see the name Huey stamped on it. Not delaying any further, Fiona makes her way out of the dungeon. Now on the surface, Haunting Ground's premise is a very simple one. It's up to you as the player to guide Fiona out of the castle and to safety. Of course, the game is way more complicated than this, but no matter what happens, this will be our goal throughout the entirety of the game. Along the way, you'll start to unravel the mystery of how it is that you come to be imprisoned in the castle that you're in, and what really happened to your parents. A quick note about story spoilers before we move on. I'm going to talk about some of the events in the game that happen in about the first hour or so of play, and maybe just a little bit further forward, but I'll keep any story revelations out of the conversation. 
Really, the story doesn't really start making sense well into the latter parts of the game, so there isn't much that I'll be talking about that would be considered a spoiler. So if that's something you're worried about, you can rest easy. If you want to go into this game completely blind, you have my permission to shut the podcast off. If you could somehow get yourself a copy and play this game through start to finish, or you don't want this game spoiled for you at all, it's been nice having you here, and I hope to see you again next week. But still, I will keep the spoilers to an absolute minimum. So before we start guiding Fiona through the castle, let's go ahead and talk about the game's presentation and see if I can do a good job of setting the stage here. The game will primarily take place within the castle that you start out in, but gradually you'll expand to other areas. Most of these areas will be indoors, though. In the first half of the game, you'll be spending much of your time in the castle proper, and I have to say, the sheer detail that the developers put into the castle and the rooms themselves is just magnificent. The castle is filled with an assortment of hallways and rooms, and what makes them so special is that none of them are bland. Each room you come across is full of amazing detail. You'll come across bedrooms that look very comfortable and lived in, bathrooms that have all the amenities, a fully stocked kitchen with everything you need to make a warm meal. It's hard to describe without really showing you, but these rooms were not half-assed. There is a painstaking attention to detail, and it really helped complete the aesthetic of the castle that's creepy, but also home to someone. Haunting Ground uses some lighting effects that are done pretty well as well, like how it can cast some shadows around. I remember seeing a shadow poking around a corner, and when I rounded that corner, there was this creepy mannequin in front of a light that was making that shadow. That was genuinely creepy. The layout of the castle and some of the subsequent areas are done really well too. Much like other games of this type, you don't have access to the entirety of the castle all at once. There will be locked doors and blocked off areas that you'll need to find a way to access. This may include solving a puzzle or locating a hidden item, but eventually more parts of the castle will become accessible to you. One thing to note that I found incredibly impressive is that there are no load times in the game at all. Typically in a game like this, the game has to stop and load each room as you pass into it. In Resident Evil, that loading time was masked exceptionally well within the door animations that happen anytime you pass into one room or another. In Haunting Ground, the only real loading that I noticed was at the very beginning when you start a fresh new game, or you load a game off of your memory card. This makes for a seamless transitional experience from room to room. When you open doors in this game, the door stays open unless you or somebody else shuts the door. Even running from one room to the next with their doors wide open, you won't experience any hiccups in performance. It's pretty impressive. One more small point, there aren't any HUD elements on screen like a life bar or a minimap or anything like that. It's just another thing that the game does well when it comes to immersing you into its world. The overall sound design in this game is pretty well done too. For most of my first playthrough, I wore a decent pair of headphones and it really spiced up the experience for me. The background music in this game sets the tone just right. The music itself does a fantastic job of setting up the atmosphere. For much of the game, Fiona is wandering around long, dark hallways or searching rooms for clues. There's always this sense that something or someone is watching you, 
and the dark and creepy tones just enhance that feeling. Footsteps and other sounds echo off the walls, the sounds of chandeliers moving ever so slightly on their chains sound incredibly realistic, and even the sounds of the footsteps of someone else in the castle looking for you can be heard if you just stop and listen. The game's events are told through cutscenes that are rendered in-game, meaning the character models and the backgrounds themselves are used to show a story scene play out. Facial animations are done really well, and all the characters you come across are well-designed. We'll get into the specifics of some of the characters you come across, but it was clear most of the visual work was put into Fiona herself. Fiona is a young, very attractive woman, and the game wants you to know this. Now we'll get into some detail on Fiona's design along with how and why she's depicted this way in a little bit, but I did want to call her out graphically. Her movements are very fluid looking, and she never looks rigid. Her facial animations are done pretty well too. Even if she isn't speaking, the looks on her face are more than enough to tell the player how she's feeling in any given situation. Aside from the in-game cutscenes, Haunting Ground uses CGI cutscenes to tell its story in some of the spots. These CGI cutscenes are kinda hit and miss for me personally. Some of the character animations can look a little bit odd to me. While Fiona herself shines in-game, her face looks slightly elongated and just a little weird looking in some of the CGI scenes. I don't really know how best to describe that. She doesn't look bad by any stretch, she just looks weird in CGI. <laughs> but not all of the characters in CGI are this way, and the CGI cutscenes themselves are pretty awesome to watch. Probably the best CGI cutscene in the entire game is the opening cinematic when you turn the game on which I'll use as a way to steer the conversation back to Fiona and the opening of the game. The opening cinematic is more or less a teaser trailer for the game itself, but there's some symbolism I wanted to touch on that really starts to set the tone for what the game is all about. In the opening, we see Fiona making her way down a long hallway that's backlit in red. Fiona comes on screen, and she's wrapped in a translucent bedsheet. The image is intercut with a scene that shows a blood droplet making its way down Fiona's nude body. We don't see her entire naked body, the imagery just makes the implication. What the game is doing here, and will continue to do as we play, is color Fiona as an object of desire. This cinematic and other in-game imagery is used to emphasize her youthful femininity, but also showcase her vulnerability. These aspects of Fiona's character are what drive the narrative forward, and drive character motivation as the story unfolds. I know what some of you are probably thinking, but it's a little bit more involved than that. But with that set up and on that note, let's rejoin Fiona and see what she's been up to after escaping the dungeon. Fiona finds herself outside in a dilapidated courtyard. There really isn't much to see, but Fiona does find a stone staircase that leads her to the castle proper. Finding a way inside the castle, she comes to a well-furnished bedroom. As she goes to move into the next room, she feels as though someone is watching her. Turning around, Fiona sees someone standing by the bed. We'll find out a little bit later that this person is named Daniela, and she's the maid of the castle. She smiles the world's creepiest smile at Fiona and gestures to a pile of clothes on the bed. I've gathered some clothes for you. 
the maid's voice is very flat, very hollow. As she starts to exit the room, her movements themselves seem very robotic. She's very stiff, very nondescript. Fiona tries to ask her where she is and how it is that she got to the castle in the first place. When asked this question, Daniela looks over Fiona's shoulder at a painting on the wall. The painting is of an older man with a very stern gaze. Possibly the master of the castle, perhaps? Daniela speaks to the painting and says, Yes, master. We will keep her here for a while. I will make sure she stays comfortable. Fiona looks over her shoulder and at the painting. There is absolutely something very unsettling about it. The face itself almost looks familiar, though. Once the maid has departed, Fiona is left alone to change into the clothes that were left for her. It all just feels so wrong, though. It's like these clothes weren't just specifically laid out for her, as if she was an expected guest, but they seem to have been made specifically for her. If you examine the clothes in your inventory screen, it says as much. As Fiona dresses, we observe the moment through the eyes of an unseen individual who is spying on Fiona from behind that creepy painting. We can hear them breathing as the camera cuts to Fiona dropping the bedsheet. This scene made me as the player feel incredibly uncomfortable. There's no on-screen nudity or anything, but the game has put me in a very awkward position. We, as players, have been tasked as Fiona's protector, and it's on us as players to guide her out of the castle and to safety, but we've also just been put in the shoes of someone preying on her. The outfit that's given to her I believe is called a bodice or a bodice, but whatever it is, it's anything but modest, and she's also given a skirt that's way too short for day-to-day wear. The outfit itself, though, is something that I would probably ground my stepdaughter for wearing in public. Now, I'm trying not to make anyone uncomfortable or anything, but there's a reason I'm describing this in such detail. In the first five or so minutes of the game, the mood is set perfectly, and it doesn't take very many words to lead us there. Helpless and alone, Fiona is in a place that she doesn't know, and it seems pretty clear that whoever the host of the castle is, they do not have Fiona's best interests in mind. With the outfit she's given and the scene where we're made to watch Fiona undress like a voyeur, it further presses on the idea of Fiona's vulnerability. We, as the player, start to feel very vulnerable with her. In most games we play, it's usually the fear of death that invokes attention or produces some scary moments. And while death is certainly a threat to Fiona in Haunting Ground, it's the vague implications of bodily violation that created most of the tension and uneasiness for me as a player. So now that Fiona has clothes on instead of a bedsheet, some of the game's mechanics are now open for us to use. Let's take a break from the narrative and talk a little bit about the game's controls and some of the features. On screen after the dressing scene, we'll be met with a few prompts explaining some of the actions that we can now take. First up, Fiona can now kick by pressing the square button. Kicking is a pretty useful skill in this game. You'll mostly use it for destroying objects in your path. One example is that you'll find pots that are about knee-high scattered about the grounds. If you kick these and shatter them, you may find an item inside. It's not a randomized feature like Resident Evil 4 is, 
from my play experience, whatever was in the pot will be in there every time you play. Unless, of course, that pot is meant to be empty, then that pot will be empty every single time. I sort of wish there would have been some sort of randomization to the items that you find, but that's just my personal preference. Other than kicking pots over, Fiona can kick barricades, flimsy holes in the wall, and there's even a point that she can kick a ladder enough times to make an object on top of it fall over so she can collect it. Fiona can also kick enemies, but it won't do anything more than stun them for a brief moment, if it even stuns them at all, so you have to use a little bit of caution there. The next thing Fiona can do is throw objects or place them on the ground after equipping them in the menu screen. Haunting Ground has several items that Fiona can come across in her travels, and equipping them can allow her to throw them or put them on the ground. And not only can you come across items that are ready-made, there's a very, let's say, interesting crafting system that allows you to make more items. I won't get into the details of all of these items, but one example of a throwing item that you can find or make is the antimony powder. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. This comes in the form of a little ball, and if you hit an enemy with it, it will shock that enemy and they won't be able to move for a little bit. It's great to get some distance between you and your pursuer. There are more powerful versions of the powder where the effect can last longer if you're lucky enough to find them or make them. An example of an item that you can drop on the ground is Magnesia. It's in the form of a crystal and it acts kind of like a landmine. When an enemy walks over it, it does some damage to them and knocks them back for a second. It's another great tool to help you get away from your pursuer. And again, more powerful versions are available. It goes without saying, but these items will be very useful in your survival. The next skill you now have is the ability to crouch by pressing the L1 button. Crouching does exactly what it implies. It will make Fiona squat down on the ground. This will be very useful in trying to evade any pursuers as they use line of sight to see Fiona and engage her. The best places to hide that I've found are in the shadows, behind waist-high objects, or right behind open doors. It sounds really simple, but running into a room and hiding behind the door that you just opened is fairly effective against some of the enemies. Not all of them, however. You'll be crouching a fair amount in this game, so keep in mind the area that you're walking through and note any good hiding places. You'll appreciate doing that later. Another new skill is the ability to perform a backstep. When you press the R1 button, Fiona will hop backwards a little bit. This is perfect for dodging an enemy attack, but we have to be careful. Doing this too much will decrease Fiona's stamina pretty fast. And speaking of stamina, running, kicking, and backstepping all decrease Fiona's stamina. As it decreases, Fiona will run slower and not be as effective fighting back. Stamina will recover on its own over time, but you can speed up that process by taking a knee and crouching in a corner somewhere and giving Fiona a chance to catch her breath. While I was playing, I didn't really run out of stamina too terribly often. When I did, it was because I wasn't able to shake my pursuers and they just flat tired me out. Or I got reckless and I backstepped one too many times, or I tried to engage them one too many times by kicking them and just tired Fiona out. As long as you hide effectively, though, you should be okay. Worst case, the game has items that you can consume to instantly restore your stamina or restore it faster over time. 
Just a quick note though before I forget, there is no on-screen prompt that tells you how much stamina Fiona actually has. You'll need to watch her closely and pick up on her visual cues to understand what her stamina situation is. The last move that you open up is a charge attack. If you're running for a few seconds, you can press your square button and Fiona will reach out and shove whoever's in her way. This is perfect for clearing a path to safety, but this move will also drain Fiona's stamina pretty considerably, so use that with caution. I also learned that if you backstep and hit your square button right away, Fiona will do her charge attack. This is useful if you aren't running or don't have the room to build up the momentum. So those are Fiona's new abilities. It's pretty clear that what she has in her toolkit isn't anything lethal. Her options, at least initially, are pretty limited. Now that Fiona has more than a bedsheet to wear around the castle, her next objective is going to be finding a way out. Oh, and I did want to touch on the controls very quickly before I forget. Resident Evil games and other survival horror games utilize old-school tank controls, where movement is dependent on the position of the character rather than the camera. When I first learned about Haunting Grounds and saw gameplay footage, I assumed that that was going to be the control scheme. However, in all actuality, the controls are more 3D style, so whatever direction you move the directional pad or the analog stick, that's where Fiona will move. It's a control scheme that works really well, but I would have personally preferred the old school tank controls. I know, it's crazy to say, I am a bit of a masochist, I suppose. But anyhow, with that out of the way, let's pick back up with Fiona again and see if we can guide her to safety. Once Fiona leaves the bedroom, she enters another long hallway. This area here is probably my favorite to walk through just because the graphics look incredible and the camera work is great. The camera is positioned behind several stone pillars and slowly pans with Fiona as she walks down the hallway. The music playing captures the mood perfectly. After what happened in the bedroom with Daniela, you're wondering what's in store for you. Either way, we have to find a way out of the castle. As Fiona explores, she finds a study that has information on things called Luminescence and Azoth. As you explore the castle, you might hear a soft tone. That tone indicates that Fiona has noted a comment about something she's discovered or something that she just saw. It's a great way to keep track of what Fiona finds and her personal thoughts on some things that she sees. Even though we just searched the study, nothing makes sense right now, so we continue on. As we're about to come up to a corner, we see the shadow of someone or something just beyond. Fiona inches towards the corner, and right as she leans around it, something flies out right at her. Fiona falls backward onto the floor as a little doll slides across the floor. Just as Fiona is getting her bearings, a large man emerges from around the corner. He shuffles over to the doll and slowly picks it up. As he's doing this, we get a good look at the man. He's a huge hunchback of a man. His eyes are huge and his hands are massive. He looks down at the doll in his hands and examines it. His big, childlike eyes then turn to Fiona. Looking between the two, the man finally tosses the little doll aside. The man has found a bigger dolly and wants to play with it. At this point, the man tosses the doll aside and starts to chase after Fiona. 
<laughs> After this happens, control is given back to the player. All we can do now is run. The man is pretty fast for someone his size, but as Fiona, the best thing we can do here is turn around and run back to the bedroom where we first came from. As we run, the music changes from the dark and spooky atmospheric kind to the panic-inducing disorienting type. The man is hot on our heels as we run back the way we came. The screen starts to blur a little and we can hear the sound of Fiona's heartbeat come through the speakers. Even the controller vibrates in time with her heartbeat. It's as if Fiona is starting to panic. As we make our way into the bedroom, we run over to the bed. An on-screen prompt lets us know that we can use the bed as a hiding place. Perfect, let's do that. Pressing the O button, we crawl under the bed. The camera view shifts to a first-person view and now we're looking out from under the bed. Loud footsteps can be heard as the man bursts into the bedroom and starts to look around. He calls out to Fiona. Fiona! Fiona! Where is you? After a little bit, the man exits the room and the music slowly fades away to silence. The game flashes a Coast Clear message on screen. Just to be sure though, we wait another few more seconds before coming out from under the bed and heading back the way we came. Well, that was a little intense, wasn't it? This man-child is the first stalker that Fiona encounters in the game. Aside from the subject matter, this is what sets the game apart from most other survival horror titles. Throughout the game, Fiona will be pursued by a stalker while she's trying to find her way out of the castle. The abilities we went over earlier are ones that she can use to slow down her stalker or help her slip past it, but there's no real way to kill a stalker outright, at least not until later parts of the game when you have to finally face your stalker in a final battle of sorts. So let's talk about the stalker as it relates to the gameplay, shall we? There are several stalkers that Fiona will have to avoid throughout the game, but only one stalker will be a threat at a time. The man-child that we just met, we find out later, is named Debilitas. I don't know how to pronounce that, so we're going with that. Debilitas will be Fiona's stalker for much of the first part of the game. I'll highlight a couple of the stalkers and their behaviors individually when we get there, but each of the stalkers have some basic rules they adhere to and things that you can do to avoid them. I touched on it earlier, but the best thing that you can do is run and hide from a stalker. Just like the bed and the bedroom earlier, there are hiding spots that you can find and have Fiona interact with that will conceal her and put her out of sight. There are wardrobes that you can hide in, curtains you can hide behind, benches you can hide under, and other things like that. Typically, hiding in spots like this will give you a great chance of escaping your stalker. Just sit tight, wait for them to pass you by, listen for the chase music to go away, and look for the Coast Clear prompt. Easy. There's a couple of things that you have to be cautious of, though. The more you hide in a particular spot, the more likely your stalker is going to become keen on your hiding spot, so they might start to find you anyway. And just because they move past your hiding spot doesn't mean that they aren't still around. Now, I don't know if they're always roaming around the area in real time, but there are times when you can hear their footsteps echoing down the hall or from another room. It really adds to the tension, believe me. 
Speaking of footsteps, your stalker can pick up on the sounds of your footsteps and any noises that you make. Your best bet to keep them away is to walk instead of run. I found that if I ran around, a stalker would show up more often than it didn't, so keep that in mind when you're moving around. I also wanted to remind you about that crouching ability. You don't just have to look for a predetermined hiding spot to evade your stalker. Hide behind a door, a pillar, or something waist-high. Crouch down and wait for your stalker to hopefully pass you by. Debilitas tends to just rush into rooms, so I had the best luck avoiding him by entering a room, hiding behind the open door, and then when he burst into the room looking for me, I would just casually walk out of it and off I went. This doesn't work with some of the other stalkers though, but still worth keeping it in mind. Some other little things to consider while I'm thinking about him. You can't search the environment while you're being pursued by a stalker, so no puzzle solving or item hunting. You can also close doors behind you while you're being chased, but the controls make this a little cumbersome to accomplish in the heat of the moment. It took me a bit to get the positioning of Fiona just right in front of the door before I could close it up all the way. Sometimes, though, it's just better to keep on running. Your stalker will generally just open up the door and follow you anyway. They're not really that far behind most of the time. Remember I mentioned earlier when we were being chased by Debilitas that the screen was starting to blur a little bit? As you are chased by a stalker, or you see things that cause Fiona stress, she will literally start to panic. As Fiona gets more stressed and panic sets in, the screen will start to desaturate, meaning that it'll start to turn black and white. The contrast gets messed up a little bit too. Whites become black, blacks become white. And all the while, Fiona's increased heartbeat will cause the picture to pulse in time with her heartbeat, and you'll feel that in the controller. Now as her panic increases, Fiona becomes more susceptible to unwanted side effects. While running, Fiona may trip over her own feet and fall to the ground for a few seconds. As she's stumbling to the ground, you lose control of her and you'll have to wait for her to get back on her feet before you can control her direction again. This is very dangerous if a stalker is right on your heels. Panic will also increase if a stalker does damage to Fiona, so it is imperative that you stay as far away from a stalker as you can. There are a couple items that you can use to reduce panic. Items such as lavender will reduce Fiona's panic, and if you're able to stop and crouch, panic will start to go away over time. You better be mindful of Fiona's state of mind, though, because if she has a full-blown panic attack, you are in trouble. When panic reaches its maximum, Fiona will let out a bone-chilling scream and she'll start to run. When this happens, you can't stop Fiona from running. All you can do is guide her in which direction to go. While she's panicking like this, you have to be sure that you don't run into any walls or the stalker themselves. If she runs into something, there's a chance that Fiona will fall to the floor. If this happens, you better pray that you made it far enough away from the stalker, because in this extremely vulnerable state, it will take just one attack from the stalker to kill Fiona outright. It sounds easy enough to guide her away, but the screen will be completely distorted now and violently pulsing. If you as the player can remain calm, you just might be able to get Fiona out of this mess.
If not, well, I hope you saved your game recently. So, what makes the stalkers in this game so unique? Each stalker that you encounter doesn't just have a specific way in which they chase you. They have specific reasons for why they want Fiona, and I think it's those reasons why they chase you that make them even more menacing. Let's go back and look at Debilitas really quick. It's pretty clear why he's after Fiona. He more than likely looks at her like a plaything, like another dolly for his collection. He has an adult body, but clearly the mind of a young child. From what I've surmised from playing the game, Debilitas doesn't seem to understand what it is to inflict pain on others and what that does to them. He just sees Fiona as a plaything, an object he desires. But what else is going on in his mind? At times, we'll see him scratch or paw at the crotch of his pants. It implies that his adult body and his childlike mind are fighting different feelings. There were times that I was fearful that Debilitas was going to violate Fiona when he caught up with her. Debilitas may not know he intends to do this, and maybe he doesn't really intend this action, but the implication and the fear of it all really made getting away from him that much more imperative. I wasn't scared of death in this sense, but I was scared at what might be done, if that makes any sense. And that's a genuine fear that I don't think video games really have the chance to explore much these days. Debilitas is arguably an innocent creature with a child's mind that doesn't really know what he's doing, but watching him rush after Fiona with such reckless abandon, it made me fearful and uncomfortable, and I don't say that lightly. I have to give props to the game's writing and design for this. I was genuinely disturbed by all of this, but I guess that's what I wanted out of a scary video game, so... hooray? The next stalker that I want to touch on is the maid of the castle, Daniela herself. She takes over as the stalker when Debilitas is eventually dealt with. We learn fairly early on that Daniela is... well, she's a little off. She's visualized as being very robotic in her mannerisms and her voice is usually dry and flat. Daniela's outward appearance, though, is one of almost perfect beauty. She has a very slender body, her skin is not wrinkled in any way, her hair is even and symmetrical. She's perfect on the outside, but very broken on the inside. We learn from Daniela herself that she's some sort of an automation. She's a sentient creature, but lacks humanity and many of the things that make us human. At one point, Daniela tells Fiona that she's unable to experience pleasure or taste and unable to feel pain. At another point, she tells Fiona that she just doesn't feel like she's complete. Fiona comes into contact with Daniela here and there while Debilitas is considered the main stalker, but she always keeps her distance and always seems to be a background object. At one point, though, all of that changes. Daniela comes across Fiona asleep in one of the bedrooms and begins to study her intently. Something starts to stir within Daniela, and we can see it in her emotionless face. She runs her hand over Fiona while she's sleeping, and comes to rest over her stomach, specifically over her womb. It's at this point that Fiona jolts awake. Daniela walks over to a nearby window and starts to study her own reflection. Though what's staring back at her can be viewed as perfect in the eyes of others, 
She's seemingly unsatisfied with what she sees, and then Daniela starts to bash her own head into the window until it shatters. Taking a piece of the window and brandishing it like a sword, Daniela turns to Fiona. At this point, Daniela is Fiona's new stalker and will pursue her around the castle. What makes Daniela an interesting choice for a stalker is that she's not after Fiona because of any physical urge. She's after Fiona out of jealousy. She wants what Fiona has, her youthful vitality and her fertility, her ability to feel something, anything. Daniela doesn't have any of these things, and seeing herself in a reflection drives her to the point of insanity. For what it is, I actually enjoyed the reasoning behind why Daniela is after Fiona. It's not just as simple as wanting to punish Fiona for having the things that Daniela doesn't. Daniela is a tortured, empty soul. She's pitiful in that sense and ultimately broken inside. Lashing out at Fiona isn't really done out of rage, but an urge to take from her what she is lacking. I was fearful as to what would happen if Daniela was successful in taking me down. What would she do? How would she go about taking the things from Fiona that she wanted? The thought behind that absolutely chilled me. Translating this back to the gameplay experience, Daniela behaves quite differently from Debilitas. She's a more methodical stalker, and a bit quicker on her feet, too. When you're trying to evade her, and Daniela comes into a room that she thinks that you're hiding in, she'll turn around and shut the door before starting to search the room. So obviously our hiding behind the door trick is out of the question. It's interesting though, as I was chased by her throughout her section of the game, I was impressed by those little details. Daniela is the maid of the house and knows all parts of it pretty well. I noticed she tended to find me in hiding spots more often than Debilitas did. What made her an even creepier stalker is that, if Daniela stopped to clean something or tend to her maid duties, she would not pursue Fiona even if Fiona was in the same room. It's like a switch was being flipped on and off. Was Daniela the one flipping that switch, or was something else going on? Even the music when being chased by her is a reflection of Daniela. It's metallic, scratchy sounding, almost sounding like a machine that's defective, if that makes any sense. Now, there are other stalkers that come into the game for other reasons, but I just wanted to take the time to highlight these two. What fascinated me about all the stalkers in this game is that they have their own twisted reasons for pursuing Fiona, and it's not just about killing her outright. That's what drove up the fear factor for me as I played Haunting Ground. There was always the threat of being caught, but more so, what happens after that? What is Debilitas capable of? What will Daniela do in order to take from Fiona that she lacks? More than that, who the fuck is in charge around this castle, and why were we even brought here in the first place? As you progress in the game, a lot of the why will still elude us. When I think back to the games like the first Resident Evil, if we found the right files in the mansion, we were able to get a pretty good idea of why the zombies were roaming around pretty early on. The mystery vanished, and we transitioned from discovery mode into purely survival mode. And that's not a bad thing, but in Haunting Ground, I feel as though the game keeps a lid on its deeper narrative until well past the halfway point. And I absolutely appreciated the game for this. 
Once you start learning the reasons behind the goings-on of what's happening around you, you kind of lose a little bit of that fear factor. So I really did appreciate not knowing what was going on for quite some time. Clues are going to be scattered around the castle, so you can potentially piece things together. But, at least for me, there was no way you were going to piece together the truth until it was told to you. Once you do figure it out and you realize the truth of why you're in the castle, all of the puzzle pieces that you've come across up to this point start to make a chilling sort of sense. Haunting Ground leans heavy on the themes of alchemy and resurrection, and those themes are amplified once you learn the truth of you being taken to the castle. Then, when you look back at everything that you've experienced and the people you've met, their motives, and even their existence, start to make a little bit more sense, and things start to look a little bit more clear. Now, Haunting Ground as a whole isn't all doom and gloom. There's one gameplay mechanic that I've kept in reserve that I want to bring up now. A little bit after running into Debilitas for the first time, Fiona will come across that animal that startled her in the very beginning when she escaped her cage. It turns out that that animal was a beautiful white shepherd named Huey. Huey introduces a pretty significant gameplay mechanic, and now that we've been over most everything else, let's talk about the best way to keep Fiona safe. When you find Huey, He'll accompany Fiona throughout the rest of the game, and we can even issue commands to Huey. Using the right thumbstick, pressing up on it will have Huey move forward to search a room for items or scout ahead for danger. If Huey does sense something dangerous, he'll start to growl. Pressing down on the thumbstick will have Fiona call Huey to her side. If you press right on the thumbstick, Fiona will praise Huey. If you press left on the thumbstick, Fiona will scold Huey. Now this is where interacting with Huey gets interesting. When you find Huey and he's roaming around with you, Huey doesn't automatically respond to every command with precision. While Huey is very grateful to Fiona for finding him, he's still pretty wary and won't always follow your commands. There are times where Huey will just wander off, and you may not see him for quite some time. You actually have to take the time to build a relationship with Huey. When he does perform a command successfully, you should praise him for it. Doing so will start to increase the odds that Huey will do that action again and more reliably. I personally never liked scolding Huey, but there is a purpose for that too. If you ask Huey to come to your side a few times and he doesn't comply, walk over to him and give him a good scolding. It sounds harsh, but that will also help build up a relationship. Just make sure that you praise him when he performs the action that you just scolded him for. Clicking the right thumbstick down will make Huey sit or lie down. If you do this action again while Huey is sitting, Fiona will ask him to shake, and Huey will give him his paw. It is adorable! It's the one thing I've been trying to teach my dog Dee Dee, but Dee Dee is not having any of it. So at least I can shake paw with Huey. Huey's commands will change when a stalker is on screen, though. Huey is going to be the most useful resource you have to fend off a stalker in this game, so it's going to be worth the extra effort to build up a relationship with him. If a stalker is near and you press up on the right thumbstick, Fiona will command Huey to attack. 
Huey won't just lunge forward and do damage, he'll actually leap onto a stalker and hold them in place while dishing out some pain. This is a fantastic time to get away. Or, if you want to try and drive a stalker away temporarily, you can continue to have Huey attack and deal more damage. If you press up on the stick again while Huey is attacking, he'll be much more aggressive and clamp down even harder. You have to be careful doing this though, as a stalker can lash out at Huey and knock him aside if you push Huey too much. With a stalker around, if you click the thumbstick and make Huey stay, he'll growl and he'll start to rear back. If you tell him to attack shortly after this, the attack will do considerably more damage. Think of it as charging up Huey before letting him loose. Pressing down on the thumbstick will have Huey stop his attack. This is useful if Huey is about to be knocked around, or if you want Huey to stay with you when you try and make your escape. But of all the things to keep in mind throughout all of this, remember this. If your relationship with Huey is not good, he may not listen to your commands each time, so it's well worth the time investment to make sure that Huey can be relied upon when a stalker is closing in. You don't want to see a stalker rush towards Fiona, Fiona tell Huey to attack, and Huey just sits down and cocks his head to the side. That is going to invite a very bad time. Okay, so I know what some of you must be thinking. Developing a relationship with a virtual dog sounds incredibly tedious, and I just want the dog to do whatever the hell I tell it to do. And honestly, I can respect that. But I think you'd be missing out on the whole purpose of the experience if you just want to hit that easy button. For me, training and building a relationship with Huey was the one beacon of light that I saw throughout the entire game. Everywhere you turn, there's nothing but darkness and uncertainty. Fiona can fight her stalkers, but she's largely ineffective on her own. She is a frail 18-year-old after all. However, taking the time to build a relationship with Huey doesn't just make him a more effective protector, it gives Fiona a much-needed companion, a light to shine in the darkness. There are times where I would lose track of Huey, and I would be on my own while exploring. Sometimes you can hear Huey barking if he was nearby. Anytime I would be reunited with Huey after losing him or after a stalker encounter, I would genuinely let out a sigh of relief. Not only was my pal safe, but just for a moment, the evil around me melted away. In a game that gives you very little to be hopeful for, Huey's companionship really made this experience for me. I enjoyed having him search for hidden items, and when Huey found something, I loved showing him some praise. Near the middle part of the game, our relationship was pretty strong, and there were times that I would stand my ground against a stalker with Huey at my side. It was awesome to be able to stand my ground every now and then, and not have to be the victim. With everything that the game was putting Fiona through, and everything that it was putting us through as a player, I was glad to not have to run away sometimes, and to be able to stand ground. So if you do play Haunting Ground one day, give Huey some attention. He's a remarkably strong ally, and there are points while you're exploring that you'll need him to progress. You won't want Huey wandering the halls because he doesn't want to be at your side when you need him for a puzzle because that will happen if you're neglectful of taking a time out once in a while and giving Huey a good scratch behind the ears. 
I want to start winding this episode down, but there are just a couple more quick things I want to touch on. I mentioned a crafting system earlier. Haunting Ground gives you the ability to craft things using these alchemy machines if you can come across any. Scattered around are these medallions that you can use to insert into these machines and use them to craft new items. Now, I've been singing nothing but praise for this game for almost the entirety of the episode. The crafting system is one of the few things that I absolutely do not care for in this game. I won't spend too much time on it, but the way it works is each medallion gives you a chance to make an item. Once you insert your medallion into the machine, you'll be taken to a symbol filled with 10 slots. In each slot, a sphere will start to spin. As it spins, you'll get a flash of color. White, blue, red, green, or black. Basically, you have to expose enough of the same color to correspond to the type of item that you're looking to create. In the game, there are alchemy files that show you what sort of item you might create based on the colors. But good luck lining up enough of that color, though. The spheres will spin very erratically, and it will be tough to line them up. I actually had better luck making items by just hitting my X button randomly than I did trying to do it legitimately. It's a very frustrating system. I will say, on one hand, I appreciated the randomness when it came to resource gain. I wouldn't be 100% sure what items I would be getting using the alchemy machine, and if I was successful in making something, it was genuinely exciting to be rewarded with something that would help me. Especially if I was somehow able to create a piece of equipment that Fiona could wear and give herself a benefit. The one time I made a piece of equipment, I received the Feather Boots. Equipping them to Fiona silences her footsteps, so stalkers can't hear them. I noticed I wasn't being found as often when I had these boots on, so that was pretty awesome. So I guess if I look at it that way, semi-randomness can add some replay value to subsequent playthroughs, but still. The process was confusing, and I would actually end up winding up making nothing more often than I would make something. It was an interesting idea, I'll give it that, but still, I don't care for it. The next quick thing I wanted to speak about was some of the game's unlockables. If you do somehow get a hold of this game, I wanted to give you an idea of what some of the extras are. For as expensive as this game can be, you'll probably want to milk as much content out of it as you can. So briefly, let me run down the list. First up, Haunting Ground features several different endings depending on how you deal with one of your stalkers and if your relationship with Huey is in good standing or not. Next, finish the game once and you'll unlock Hard Mode. In Hard Mode, health items aren't found in the game normally. You have to get lucky and create them through alchemy machines. Also, some of the lesser enemies that appear later in the game will appear much earlier. Your stalkers will be wearing different color clothes, so that's pretty neat. Oh, and remember how Fiona makes comments when she discovers new things in the game? These comments are pretty helpful when it comes to puzzle solving and remembering where to go next. In hard mode, comments posted are actually Huey's thoughts instead of Fiona's. Even though it makes it immensely harder to use those comments to progress in the game, it's really cool to get Huey's perspective after certain events take place. There are unlockable costumes as well. 
While Fiona's skimpy default outfit is explained away due to story reasons, there are two revealing costumes that you can put on Fiona, and these are pure sex appeal. However, they do come with interesting abilities that change the gameplay up a bit. One outfit gives Fiona a long whip that replaces her kick, and another gives Fiona a short-range gun. There's also a joke costume by way of a frog suit that Fiona can wear. This one is pretty awesome, and I like that when you wear this one or any other of the alternate costumes, they're worn during all of the cutscenes. There's also an unlockable minigame where you can control Huey instead of Fiona, and you have to guide her to safety, kind of like a sheepdog. That mode wasn't as fun as it sounded, but it was still a nice addition. So, as we wrap it all up, Haunting Ground is a unique game with a unique premise. It's a different take on the horror genre that isn't out to just scare you. The fear it creates stems from taking the player and putting them in an uncomfortable situation. Haunting Ground shines the brightest when it's pulling you into the darkest parts of itself. It was an eye-opening experience for me. When I played the game as Fiona, I too started to feel as vulnerable as her. When I was made to watch other characters chase after her for their selfish and sadistic reasons, I felt violated and I felt kind of gross. I especially felt repulsed when the game put me in the eyes of her pursuers while I watched them treat Fiona like an object to be used or owned. I'm grateful that I've never experienced these feelings in real life, and it makes me sad to think that there are people out there that are feeling this way right now. But despite the relentless pursuit by her stalkers, Fiona's heart and intentions always remained pure, and they always remained true. She never became twisted by the evil that wanted to consume her. She remained true to herself and found a way to persevere despite it all. By the time the game ended, I wasn't looking at a scared woman. I was looking at someone who was able to move past a traumatic experience with a renewed sense of hope. Fiona is often depicted as helpless, but by the time the experience was over, she didn't necessarily come out stronger. She came out of the experience intact. And I think that's the greatest outcome for Fiona that you and I could possibly hope for. I, myself, felt a lot of these feelings after seeing the credits roll. I didn't just guide Fiona to freedom, I fought for it, with her. And ultimately, we both persevered. Unless you get the game's worst ending. The one where you don't make it out. The ending so dark, you'll wish that you had perished somewhere in that castle. I pray that if you do play Haunting Ground one day, you take care of that dog companion of yours. You stick together and you keep running. Because the fate you suffer is much worse than death.
with that, we've come to the end of episode 15, Haunting Ground for the PlayStation 2. Thank you all so, so much for downloading the show and giving it a listen this week. If you're new to the show, covering a game this dark is new for us, but I wanted to talk about a game that not only fit the Halloween time frame, but I wanted to talk about a game that I really do think is worth trying if you're into this sort of genre. And, if nothing else, I hope it was a good and spooky episode of the Retro Wildlands to kill some time listening to. Ultimately, though, is Haunting Ground worth the price of admission? That's really going to be on you to decide. I'm happy to have played the game, and I'll definitely be going back to it again soon. Now, is this a must-play game? No, I don't think so. It certainly has its flaws, and things get a little wonky near the game's conclusion, but for the one-of-a-kind experience, I do say take it if you have the means, but if you decide not to or you don't want to plunk down several hundred dollars for this one, don't keep yourself up at night. It's not that much of a -a one-of-a-kind experience. I am hoping one day, though, that this game is released digitally here in North America, but until that day comes, I can only hope. Still, I hope the show was entertaining, and I hope I did the game some justice. Now, if you like the show, please consider subscribing to it on your podcasting platform. By doing this, you'll be notified as soon as episodes drop. Also, if you're able to, please consider leaving us a good review. I have to imagine if you made it this far, there was something about the show that you liked, so I appreciate you taking the time and posting up a good review. Good reviews will help the podcast circulate on different platforms and be seen by new people, so that would be awesome if you could help out with that if you did like the show. By far, the best way to support the show would be to spread the word about the Retro Wildlands to anyone you think might like it. Little by little, we get just a few more downloads each day, so let's see if we can grow this thing into something awesome. So what's coming up next week? With a heavy hitter like Haunting Ground in the books and Halloween coming to a close, I think it's time to rinse all the spider webs and blood off and get back to something a little bit more old school. I still need to get to work on Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII for a future episode, but as far as next week goes, it's probably going to be one of the three games that I mentioned in the intro. Super Mario World, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, or Mega Man 2. Or I could be doing something completely different. It just depends on my mood. (laughs) You can wait until next week to find out, or you can follow us over on social media for a sneak peek beforehand. You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you search at Retro Wildlands. Typically over the weekend, I'll start posting what it is that I'm covering the next week, and I'll be giving you the chance to interact with the show if you want through those social channels. I'll post a call out for comments and questions on either Saturday or Sunday, but all week I'll be putting up some gaming goodness while I sprinkle in some other random retro stuff on top. Plus, if you want to get a hold of me directly to chit-chat or give me some feedback on the show, you can do so by sending me a DM on any of those platforms. I'm looking forward to seeing you over on social media, and I'll be back next week with another trip down Nostalgia Lane. Until then, my friends... My name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands.